Hello and welcome to episode 119 of Some Like It, Scott. I'm your host, Scott Harvey, and I'm joined, as always, by my co-host, Scott Shelton. In the podcast, we wrap up our series on the films of David Fincher by reviewing his first film in six years, the biographical drama, Mank. And joining us today, as he did for each episode of the Fincher Countdown, is our Countdown series co-host, Jay Habib. Jay, how's it going? Hey, Scott. I'm good. Um, it's, what, first week of December now? Um, we finally saw Mank. That was exciting. And, yeah, just uh, excited for the holiday season. I'm going to start my annual rewatching of the Harry Potter series this weekend, so that'll be fun. I've been playing a lot of Harry Potter uh, Hogwarts Battle to gear up for it, too. I'm just... I am reveling in the, the real Pokemon Go. No, no, the the board game. Oh, it's not um, like there's like there's like some Pokemon Go like uh, mobile game. For there is. Um, I had never played it, but uh, it exists. And no, I was talking about the cooperative board game. Um, oh, that's cool. I didn't even know that existed. I'll have to check that out. Yeah, we'll have to talk about it uh, later. I need to give you a full precursor before you buy it. <laughs> yeah, I'm Jay, I'm glad. It. Yeah, good. And I'm glad you were actually able to see the final movie this time because it was a little bit of a, a downer to not be able to finish out the Nolan series with you here because obviously, um, you know, you weren't able to go to theaters living in New York. So, um, I mean, Tenet, is it is it out now on digital? It's a, or it's a week, week from tomorrow. It's okay. a week from tomorrow. So you'll get to see it then. Um, hopefully, but who would want to watch a movie time. at home? I mean, what a concept right now. I'm sorry, I shouldn't do this. They should, re- should, they should release it on HBO Max only. Uh, there you go. <laughs> the worst streaming service. But uh, but no, Scott, how about you? How are you doing? I'm good. I, uh, I'm glad that we got to finish another countdown series. I've been pretty vocal about how I've enjoyed them. They are a lot of work on the back end ending up doing multiple, you know, editing and rec- I mean, recording and then editing multiple podcasts a week. And I was reticent about doing the Fincher one, but I'm glad we did it. Um, getting to revisit some movies I hadn't seen in a while and getting to see some uh, new ones as well, including one of my favorite ones in the you know Fincher filmography too, with Panic Room and getting to cap it all off feels like the right note to end on. And obviously, neither of our series have perfectly lined up with the original release dates or the <laughs> projected release dates of either film so it feels a little bit more disjointed this year than it did last year with the star wars countdown but hopefully next year with our next countdown series which we did reveal on the last episode of the countdown will be a 007 slash james bond uh curated curated countdown but hopefully that release date will actually stick um maybe it'll come out on apple tv plus instead of or something like that. I don't know. Uh, that movie seems like a viable candidate to get kicked down the road again. But we'll see. I'm excited to be capping the series off and excited to have Jay on. You know, this is technically a Some Like It's Got podcast, not a, not a countdown podcast. I'm excited to have him back on here because I think this is the first time this year. Or no, Birds of Prey. Birds of Prey. Never mind. Yeah, uh, it seems like the broccolis are probably not going to let No Time to Die be released on any streaming service. But uh, they're, they're maybe Nolan will do a movie with the broccolis next. Who knows? Yeah, there you go. I mean, two peas in a pod, three peas in a pod. Uh, however many broccolis there are still living. But um, but but yeah, no, I, I'm excited for that series. Hopefully, you know, the vaccine stuff seems to be coming along, right? Like the, the all of the recent data seems positive. So maybe knock on wood. <laughs> Um, the, we can actually get to see, I'm sitting at my wood desk. Uh, we can actually get to see No Time to Die in theaters on schedule. But a lot has to happen between now and then for that to be the case. Um, but 
All right, guys, as mentioned, uh, today we are wrapping up the Fincher series with a film unlike any the director has ever made. Adapted from a script by Fincher's late father, Jack Fincher, Mank is a black and white tale of old Hollywood intrigue starring Gary Oldman as alcoholic screenwriter Herman Mankiewicz. As the film opens, Mank has just been asked by his friend Orson Welles, played by Tom Burke, as a young radio star looking to make his feature film debut to write a screenplay for it. Having grown disillusioned with Hollywood after years of navigating its hierarchies of power and strangleholds on creatives, Mank decides to air his grievances in a screenplay for the ages, taking aim in particular at MGM studio head Lewis Mayer, played by Arliss Howard, and publishing mogul William Randolph Hearst, played by Chance. But in doing so, Mank is forced to reckon with the potential consequences that his script might have on his future in the business and his relationship with actress Marion Davies, played by Amanda Seyfried, while coming to terms with what is truly important to him, his voice as a writer or his place among the Hollywood elite. Rendered with meticulous detail by Fincher, cinematographer Eric Messerschmidt, and composers Trent Reznor and Atticus Ross, Hank is a star-studded period piece that takes both a cynical and nostalgic look at old Hollywood. Jay, we'll start with you. Is Mank a dazzling showcase for Fincher's versatility as a filmmaker, or does it find him straying too far from the types of films that he's made his name on? So I'll tell you what, I finished this movie about 40 minutes ago. Um, so you're getting like the, like the fresh, you know, okay. hot off the presses and whatnot. Um, I mean, you, you said it, right? Like this is unlike anything he's made before. So in, in the most literal sense, like it's strayed, sure. The movie, I could see it being a lot more enjoyable if I had actually seen Citizen Kane. I think the concept of like this like tortured writer is like fun to work with. And, you know, like th there are aspects of the film, the cinematography, the sound that are like cool. And there's, you know, some like fun dialogue in there as well. But ultimately, I feel like I'm like sitting in on a conversation full of like inside jokes that I just don't get. Um, when he's like, you know, making references to like things in the script or again, just like generally what's going on. And I think it's enjoyable enough, like outside of, you know, like, like again, like having virtually no context here like again i didn't see a trailer i knew that it was about you know mank writing the script and that it was about, it was about citizen kane a movie that is like widely considered like the best ever but you know like only knowing that it was still like pretty fun but i, I can't help but just feel like i was missing a lot from it and yeah that that's where i landed scott how about you yeah look i think i'll, I'll start off by just repeating what I actually said in my letterbox review, where it's like, this film is technically superb. Like cinematography, production design, score, all of it. It it fits the vibe that the film is trying to go for of, you know, the 30s, early 40s, Hollywood. Like I, I didn't live during that time, but it's certainly what I imagine it is like, and it nails it, does it really well. It's really something to behold. I think this movie is for a very particular audience and that audience wasn't me. Like I have not seen Citizen Kane. I haven't seen that many old movies. And frankly, I think most people are going to have a hard time if they even turn it on, are going to have a hard time really connecting uh, with this film. And that's fine. There's absolutely nothing wrong with that. But I just didn't didn't feel like I got very much out of it. And I think I'd have a hard time recommending this to like a casual movie fan, which again, is fine. That's not like not every movie has to be for a casual movie fan. 
Um, but I, I agree with Jay's sentiment of feeling like I missed a lot of the jokes. Uh, one of the things that I think actually was really cool was I really liked the format of the story, like hopping back and forth. At, at first, I thought, wow, this is really going to snap you back and forth a little bit too much the way they structure the story. I think it actually worked pretty well. But the problem is, is that I just like I don't I didn't get the story until they just told you what the story was at the end. Right. Like I'm not aware of a lot of the things that I think you're supposed to be aware of going into the movie. And again, that's fine. But I think it, it just speaks to a very particular audience who one is familiar with Citizen Kane and the creation of it itself, as well as other sort of old Hollywood movies and caters towards people who care about, you know, recreating that on the screen and in an impeccable way, right? Like the, I would compare this to like, this is a movie that celebrates Hollywood, but unlike once upon a time in Hollywood, this is not made for a casual movie fan. Like once upon a time in Hollywood was like made where anyone can pick that up and watch it um, and have a really good time. I don't think anyone can pick this up and watch it and have a good time. Unfortunately for me, that, that was just what I, and, and I felt like I was in, the group of people who this film just doesn't connect with. Yeah. I mean, I don't disagree that this is probably not for the casual movie fan. I will say like, I don't think it's a huge ask to ask viewers to watch one of the greatest films of all time. What is generally considered one of the greatest films of all time in, you know, in preparation for this movie or just having ever seen it, honestly. Um, but even if you haven't seen the film, like, and I was talking about this with a couple of people last actually, um, even if you haven't seen Citizen Kane, if you go read the plot summary of Citizen Kane, if you read like a general overview of the themes, I think that you can appreciate and understand 85 to 90 percent of the references to Citizen Kane that are found within Mank. Like you don't need to know like images, like super deep cut details from Citizen Kane to like actually appreciate um you know, the, I think the references that are going on here, you need to know who the characters are. You need to know that like, Charles Foster Kane, right? And you need to know about Rosebud, obviously, which is, again, a very famous part of movie history. Um, and you need to know, like, about Charles Foster Kane basically being a stand-in for William Randolph Hearst and that not being a good thing, right? Like, that that comes across pretty clearly in Mank, I think, that, um, that William Randolph Hearst, like, what Charles Foster Kane represents... Um, you know, standing in for Hearst again is not a good thing. It's a it's a certain type of um, elitism in Hollywood that uh, Mank is trying to push back against um, in in his script. So I think like as long as you understand like a general overview of Citizen Kane again, like I said, and and what who the characters are supposed to be, um, I don't even think you need to watch the movie. But even if I mean you should watch the movie because it's a really great movie um, and. Again, I, I feel like, you know, we had a similar conversation, Scott, when we talked about I'm thinking of ending things earlier this year about how there's some really deep cut stuff in there about like Robert Zemeckis and Pauline Kael's review of a woman under the influence. I think this is uh, not as, uh, you know, narrow as that. Like, I again, I think we're talking about Susan Kane again, one of the most famous and well-loved movies of all time. Um, so I and feel like clear, it's not I think I think Mank is more accessible than that movie, which I think is borderline. Yeah. Yeah impenetrable <laughs> but yeah that's another conversation sure. we've, had, we've um, already had before <laughs> yeah we had that one um sure but uh i mean i loved the movie i i uh it's one of my top five movies of the year so far um i i i found the story just so interesting 
and maybe it is because I really like Citizen Kane. Maybe it is because I like a lot of old movies. Maybe it is because old Hollywood interests me. But um, I think, you know, the sign of a great filmmaker is being able to draw in people from outside their interests. And, you know, I, I feel like there's going to be people who, you know, maybe don't are predisposed to like um, stuff about old Hollywood like this, who I think will find the story interesting. Now, maybe that's not a, a huge proportion of people. Um, but I think all, I mean, I think there's like some really relevant stuff going on here about almost like fake news and propaganda. And there's, a, there's this whole storyline about, you know, the the elections going on in California with Upton Sinclair, um, you know, the famous author running for, is it Senator, right? Um, governor. It, it, okay, Governor. Um, and, you know, sort of socialism and communism and, you know, there's some pretty in-depth conversations that go on about these political ideologies that don't feel too different, honestly, from a lot of the conversations we're having nowadays about socialism, you know, progressivism, basically, on, on the left. Um, I, I think there's some interesting conversations that are going on here um, and an interesting, you know, of ideologies going on between, um, you know, somebody like Mank and, you know, the William Randolph Hearst, the Lewis Mayers, the big wigs, the billionaires, the, um, you know, people who control all the wealth, who have all the power, who control the media to some extent. Um, and, you know, where they lean politically is, you know, on the side of, hey, we don't want to upset the natural order of things. We want somebody who's going to, um, you know, reinforce our position in this hierarchy. But anyway, that's a little deep into it. I, again, I found the story really interesting. Um, and, you know, kind of like the meta layers that are going on, I think are really interesting because, you know, you're talking about he's adapting his father's screenplay, right? And the movie is about screenwriting really like as a profession um to, to some extent you know it's i feel like in the end ultimately it's validating screenwriting as being um a noble profession so to speak where you can kind of speak truth to power um if you're not afraid of the consequences that are going to come um which mank obviously isn't but um or he decides he isn't ultimately but um so I and, and you know and, and that's interesting when you think about again, the context of Fincher adapting his father, his late father, who didn't write anything else. Like this is his only screenplay that's ever been filmed. Uh, and just you know thinking about the the context there, I think reveals some interesting things. Um, I think Gary Oldman gives a really performance as Mank. Uh, I love the way that the movie is, you know, rendered in this beautiful black and white. The sound mixing is a little like. He's, it's a little fuzzy, right, to like sort of mimic old movie qualities. Um, there's like cigarette burns on the film. Like he really went all the way, as you would expect from David Fincher, right, uh, in terms of like how meticulously he recreated the period. And I think it serves the film well. Um, so ultimately, I found it really entertaining and engaging. Not everyone will, certainly. Um, it's not, yeah, it, it, maybe it's not for the, the casual movie fan, like, you know, to use that phrase again, Scott. But I do think it is accessible to someone who, you know, wants to make a little bit of an effort to seek out Citizen Kane to or, or again, to at least read about what the film is about, understand its place in history, understand, you know, just a general background on who Orson Welles was, even though Orson Welles isn't as important to the story of Mank. Um, he does you know, obviously play a part in it, but um, 
I, I don't feel like it requires as much research maybe as like I'm thinking of ending things did. That's a whole different beast, but yeah. So <laughs> I, I started off when we uh, started recording, I was like, I don't think I'm going to enjoy this conversation uh, because I had a feeling that you guys uh, maybe weren't come down on the positive side of it. But um, let's talk about maybe something we can agree on is all positive. I don't know. Maybe not. Uh, it, some people do seem to be divided about whether Gary Oldman's performance as Mankus um, is is good or not. Uh, Jay, what side do you come down on? I, I land on the good, so we can agree on that, if nothing else. Um, yeah, I mean, I, I I'm someone who like generally likes seeing Gary Oldman and on like on screen, and I thought you know this was a really enjoyable performance. Like again, very believable. I you know again, I like the way he like carried himself both like in the lows, but also kind of more like the quippy self-righteous highs. Like I bought into it, you know, I, like, I think like I have to decide which one I'm going to go with, but like, I think all my like, you know, potential favorite moments are like lines of his, um, which I mean, probably isn't actually that spectacular of a thing, but like, they're like specific, like, like one liners because mm -hmm. of just, you know, he has a lot of them. Yeah. Yeah. And you know, they were, they were fun. So and then again, you know, just like the, the believability of like the self-righteousness and like the, you know, it, it all like comes through really well, like really believably in it to use that like expression again, you know, like I very much like feel for like the tortured artist here, you know, as he's kind of like trying to like, you know, navigate things in the flashbacks and like, you know, I mean, that, that's just it, right? Like navigating things in the flashbacks and eventually landing where he does in quote unquote present day, like, you know, it, it was a treat to watch. Yeah, I mean, I, that's something I should have mentioned in my general thoughts that, like, I don't know. I love, I mean, I, but I love the screenplay for this movie. Like, I, I, this, it might be my favorite part of the movie. Um, and it's, it's hard to know where, um, like, Jack Fender's screenplay ends and Fincher's, you know, because obviously he reworked it to some extent, or his touch. Eric, Eric Roth re rewrote the script. Okay. Okay. I thought Fincher worked. But yeah. So Eric Roth, who, who Fincher has worked with before, I believe on Benjamin Button, if I'm not mistaken. Um, but um, so he he reworked the screenplay. So it's hard to know, you know, where one begins and the other, where one ends and the other begins. But it, it, I mean, the dialogue in like the best scenes really like crackles, like in old movies, right? Like that, if you watch a lot of old movies, which again, I watch a fair amount of them, um, you know, a lot of the best ones, like Scott, you know, just to use an example that we've both seen, we both watched relatively recently, All About Eve, right? That's an example of a movie, Joseph, directed by Joseph Bankowitz, by the way. Um, I have a funny story I'll tell you after brother, the podcast. But um, it, it has that, like, just razor sharp dialogue, and it's just, you know, bouncing back and forth. Um, and there's, you know, that's a quality of a lot of good old movies. Like, even, I mean, it's almost like a film noir-ish, like, uh, style of dialogue in a way. Uh, at times. And I thought that that, you know, was, was really strong. And uh, again, really evoked like the movies of the time period. And yeah, it's, it's got a great wit to it. And Gary Oldman's performance contributes to that. I think Scott, your thoughts on the performance. I think it's a really mixed performance guys. I, I'm definitely more on the negative. I think that there's just a point I, I know. I don't want to harp on this too much, but like Gary Oldman is 62 and he's playing a 33 year old man at a point at one point in this movie. Like, he is just not the right person to cast in, in this role. I think it's it it must just be David Fincher really wanting to work with Gary Oldman or really seeing his vision for Mank in Gary Oldman. But I just can't imagine Mank being like Gary Oldman. Like 
Gary, I mean, Gary doesn't look like he's 62, but he doesn't look that he's like 30 or even 40. And so it, it really did take me out of it to see, you know, ostensibly who, who is this like reasonably like middle age to old man in Gary Oldman playing this person who's supposed to be like still pretty young. And it, it did take me out of it. I also think that whoever's decision it was to tell Gary Oldman how to act drunk, like clearly has never met a drunk person because that is just like not how drunk people act. I've never met anyone who acts like Gary Oldman does in like the climactic scene um, of the movie. And then other times throughout the film when he's like, I guess at least awake and drunk, it, it just felt like a really mixed performance. I mean, I think that he does deliver some of the, some of the crackling dialogue. I think he delivers that part, those parts well. Um, so it, again, it is mixed. It's not totally negative. Um, but I, I and, and so I did enjoy parts of the performance when I was able to sort of, you know, not be thinking about how I felt like Gary Oldman himself was taking me out of it. Um, but overall, I think I wish that they'd found, you know, frankly, someone, someone younger who is just as capable of, of delivering a big line like Gary Oldman might, might be able to, and, and has proven in the past that he's been able to, and proves in this that he's able to, um, to really hit home the big punches. Cause I think there are definitely scenes where I enjoyed his performance. I think that the way his dynamic develops with Amanda Seyfried's character, Marion, I think is a really good part of the movie. I think it's, a, it's a really interesting, um, relationship that, feels in some ways almost underdeveloped in the film and actually i mean i'll get to more of that later but i think a lot of a lot of the subplots in this movie feel super underdeveloped to me it's just trying to cover so much ground and it is ultimately trying to be about this central story of like creating citizen kane or at least the writing process for citizen kane and going through some of these emotions with gary oldman's version of herman mankowitz that i feel like it undercooks to me what's actually some of the more interesting aspects of the, of the film but i know that's probably what is interesting i think is up for debate because Certainly some people are going to care about, care about certain subplots more than the other. And that's totally fine, obviously. But overall, mixed for me, uh, I don't think I would have cast Gary Oldman in the, in the role. But I, under, I think I kind of understand what David Fincher was going for with that choice. If it was his choice, I assume that it was because he does uh, exercise a lot of creative control in, in the films that he directs. But yeah, I'm more mixed than, it, than you guys, it sounds like. I mean, look, when you think about the meta layers kind of that I was talking about, you wonder, right, like is... Is he casting Herman Mankiewicz here or is he casting his father? Right. And maybe that's why he goes with an, an older actor uh, for better or for worse. Right. I, I, you know, I think that's something interesting to think about because I'm sure he probably sees a lot of his father in this Mank character. And, you know, is maybe what drew him to the film in the first place. But um, that would be a really weird but, choice for someone who is meticulous as Fincher is, who wants to recreate, you know, words on the page. But. I mean, I mean, look, there's definitely a meta element to the movie, so it's, it's possible. Yeah, I mean, look, the aging stuff doesn't usually bother me. Like the, you know, the Irishman obviously had the, we had the conversation about that. Florence Pugh in Little Women, you know, was playing like a 12-year-old in that one schoolroom scene, which is kind of like a little weird, but it's just really just the one scene. I mean, I understand where you're coming from in this because I think by the end of the movie, right, when Mank decides he's going to, you know, publish Citizen Kane, spoiler alert for history, um, he, you know, puts the screenplay out there. He's like, yeah, I'm gonna go forward with it, whatever. And then, you know, we get the ending subtitles of like, he never wrote another screenplay again. Like, you know, he, this was the end of his career, basically. Like he got an Oscar and then that that was it. And and like and 42 at the time when he when right, he exactly. And, and it seems less shocking when you're talking about someone of Gary Oldman's age, I guess, because, you know, he is older. And so you're like, well, you know, he had a long career or whatever. He was 
older. But no, the reality of it is that, yeah, he was in his 40s, right? Like he still had 30 years or something of great screenplays to write probably. And um, this kind of, you know, killed any chances of him being able to do that. So I think in, in that regard, I understand how the aging thing is a little bit of a, uh, a mixed bag. I really like the performance. I think he um, is like the right amount of like rough around the edges outsider a little bit. So where like, you know, cause he's walking both, he's walking a thin line the entire movie. I think of like, he's, you know, he's Hearst's favorite guest or whatever, you know, I think uh, Anna Seifert's character makes that comment to him at one point, like, you know, do you really want to piss off, uh, you know, or William, whatever they call him, um, because, you know, he loves you, whatever, you know, he's got, you know, possibly a career with writing movies for big studios like MGM, right? If he doesn't piss off Lewis Mayer. Um, and so he's, tr- he's walking this thin line of like, you know, I have to stay on the good side of these people for my own well-being and status. But also, you know, you see like the sea resentment uh, at times like that. That scene that I mean, I mean, that's my favorite scene where they're at the dinner party at at um, uh, at Hearst's house, I guess it is. And, you know, it's kind of a long dialogue scene. They talk about politics a lot. It's when, I think when the Upton Sinclair stuff first comes up. But, um, you know, there's there's a lot of like push and pull going on in that scene in the dialogue. And I think Gary Oldman portrays that contrast very well in his character. Um you know, uh, as someone who is really caught in two minds, which is what the whole movie is about, right? Does, is, does he, you know, want to write this screenplay? What, what is important to him, right? Is it speaking the truth, putting what he believes out there on the page, or is it, you know, maintaining his place in the Hollywood elite, having a comfortable lifestyle for himself, whatever? Um, I, I think that is, you know, probably the central thread of the movie. Um, and, you know, because because it's also it's not just about this specific scenario. Right. It's it's kind of interrogating the whole field of screenwriting and like, you know, examining what is the job of the screenwriter. Um, and so uh, I think Gary Oldman does a really good job, uh, although, you know, there are some I understand some of the concerns about, you know, physically um, him not matching up with with Mank, which is a little bit weird for uh, for Fincher, I guess, uh, you know, to go to your point, Scott, but um, supporting cast wise, um, you know, we have some pretty big names here. Amanda Seyfried, uh, Lily Collins. We haven't mentioned plays like the nurse who is like sort of caring for Mank when he's, you know, right, while he's writing Citizen Kane because he's, you know, he's hurt his leg and he's um, confined to a bed, basically. Um, and um, she's a secretary. And, yeah, I couldn't think of I couldn't think of the right word, but um, she's kind of she's you know she's the, we've seen this type of character before. It's a little bit of a tropey character of like the you know young female drawn to the bedside of the old man, whatever. But um, you know, or you know, you can swap the genders, whatever. But um, but yeah, uh, so she's in the movie. Tom Burke plays uh, Orson Welles, obviously. You know, uh, Orson Welles, sort of a larger-than-life figure in real life, um, has been played a few times on film, most successfully, in my opinion, by Christian McKay and me and Orson Welles. Um, and, yeah, so so those are kind of the main ones. I mentioned Arliss Howard plays uh, Lewis Mayer. Charles Gitz, obviously, is, um, uh, is William Randolph Hearst, you know, famous actor from Game of Thrones and other stuff. Um, but Scott, who stood out for you? You mentioned, you know, that you like some of the scenes between 
Mank and Marion Davies, played by um, Amanda Seyfried. Did you enjoy her performance in the movie? Yeah, I, I did. I did enjoy her performance for the for the most part. I, I think if you're asking me though, who stood out? I, I don't think it was Amanda Seyfried for me. I think she did. That's not a hit on her. I just think there were some stronger supporting performances in there. And I think honestly, first and foremost of them is Arliss Howard. I think he he does Louis B. Mayer really really well. He I'll just go ahead and I don't know if this is a question we're asking later. I know we do it sometimes on the countdown, but he's by far my favorite um, performance in, in the film. I think that he really hits that like two faced studio executive who is a is a like a, a, you know when it gets to, when it comes down to brass tacks he is a businessman and looks out and only cares about himself uh, I think he goes in front of all the employees oh my god yeah. Yeah. yeah 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 um incredible incredible scene and to me like honestly i think the performance is that good it, it feels head and shoulders above a lot of the other performances for me uh in in the movie and again i don't mean that as a knock on those other performances, I think it is that good. I think it's a really strong performance. And then second place for me would be Lily Collins, who I think is a really charming and endearing Reed Alexander, as tropey as the character uh, is. As you were saying, I, I agree that it, it shortchanges the character in development, but I think Lily uh, Collins gets the most out of the character with the performance she gives and is you know very likable. Uh, I really enjoyed her presence. And as much as I enjoy you know Gary Oldman and Amanda Seyfried, I did also like that dynamic of Lily Collins and what I'd call like a mini arc that she goes through. Look, she doesn't have any significant character developments with the courts of the film, but she has one scene or a couple of scenes where I think that puts together some character pieces that I, I think I thought were quite nice. And uh, I appreciated, you know, that element of it. And even if it was, you know, not not necessarily three dimensional, but, you know, two dimensional character development at the very least. But overall, I think those were the two that stood out for me. But uh, that's not a knock on some of the other, you know, the long list of supporting cast members. I think you you mentioned because you didn't even mention that Bill Nye is in this film, guys. Bill Nye is in this movie. When was he in this movie? He's Upton Sinclair. He's like the, at the rally. Oh wow, I didn't even notice that. <laughs> he must have. Yeah. He didn't. He didn't really have that many lines. Did he? Like I, well, he's just giving the speech over like across yeah. the street from the from MGM. Yeah. I think. Right. Um, interesting. Uh, I feel like he he has the the right look for this time period, but um, yeah, so that probably. was good casting. But uh, Jay, how about you? Who stood out for you from the supporting cast? Yeah, I really can't say too much here because Scott Shelton took my one and my two. Um, I, I will say it was in reverse order, though. Um, and yeah, I mean, I though I can only think of like one example off the top of my head, and you know, of the like younger person drawn to like the older person's bedside and whatnot i did actually really enjoy lily collins's performance um you know there's that one scene where like you know she finds first she like finds out he's been smuggling booze into the house gets upset at who i think is actually the nurse um or just another caretaker in the house about doing so and then when she finds out about what mank has done for like her family she comes out and is like willing to help him and i you know kind of enjoyed like her wit um in that scene and you know throughout again like scott shelton said you know not much of a, a real development there trophy character sure but like i still found it enjoyable um seconded then again by you know arliss howard for all the reasons you mentioned again that scene at, MG- at uh, mgm you know was also like as like you know cringe and awful like it was just enjoyable this to watch was- um and just to echo Scott's only other po- or the last point, you know, no knock on anyone else, but you know, those are the two that the, uh, the scenes were like, were like he's in the studio, even Arliss Howard as Lewis Mayer. And he's like, just like walking through the hallway. It reminds me of like in Christmas vacation when like uh, Brian Doyle Murray as the boss of, uh, of 
of Clark Griswold is like walking. Through, he's followed by his like team of men and they're just like stomping through the hallway and you just get the shot of like their feet. It's like, boom, boom, like this intimidating like guy is kind of, it reminded me of that, uh, you know, for some reason in this film, when you just see like him in the studio, he really, I think, takes a strong presence. So I think it's a good shout. Lily Collins, I think she gives a fine performance. Um, I'm not as crazy about this part of the movie involving her. I think it's the least interesting part. Um, I don't really get the purpose of like all that's going on with her husband in the war and then he's alive, you know, whatever we find out in the end. I don't know. That that didn't really do much for me if there was supposed to be some emotional um, impact. That. So that, that was... Maybe I hope like that there wasn't supposed to be an emotional impact because I can't imagine a single person who actually felt too much of emotional impact after because yeah. like most of the movie it's in like her character is like nothing to do with her. It's like one line and she doesn't even she doesn't yeah. even seem that sad about it. <laughs> like throughout the rest of the well, movie. yeah, and, and that's the thing. I think it's probably the weakest part of the movie for me. Um, yeah. but, I mean, look, Amanda Seyfried, I really like her performance and I think for some reason people seem to be mixed on her as an actress in general. I have always enjoyed her work. Like, I, I can't think of a movie, honestly, that I've seen her in where I haven't, like, enjoyed her performance to some extent. I think she has um, a solid filmography. And I think she's really believable as, like, you know, the classic old Hollywood, like, screen blonde. Um, and she, you know, some really good scenes with with Mank, that long walk that they have um, together. There's some great dialogue in, in that, uh, you know, sequence that she... She goes toe to toe for him, right? Like she's tearing that, that dialogue as well. I think we maybe over uh, underestimate how hard it is, like taking the musicality and the rhythm of dialogue like this from an acting perspective. Um, it's the same thing we talk about with like Sorkin, for example. I think not every actor can do Sorkin because it's just like you have to get that ping ponginess to it. Uh, I mean, he he himself says that like dialogue, his dialogue, it's, he thinks of it as music. Um, and I think you can say the same for this kind of dialogue. And I, th- Go ahead. I think you are you are uh, looking at Amanda Seyfried's filmography with some rose colored glasses because I think she's done some real stinkers that you haven't seen. That may be true, but like I said, I think everything I've seen her and I I've enjoyed her mostly. I think there are a lot of act very good actors who have stinkers in their filmography. Um, oh, definitely. But anyway, so so I enjoyed her performance a lot in the movie. Uh, and so a smaller name, but Ferdinand Kingsley, who plays uh, Irvin, Irving. Irving Thalberg, yeah, the producer, I thought he uh, made I the most him. of his few scenes on the screen. So I, I don't know. I haven't seen him in anything else, I don't think, but um, I thought he fit in very well with the rest of the cast. And you know, Charles Dance is like, a, he's a great choice, I think, for this big, again, imposing sort of um, elite figure in William Randolph Hearst, I think. He's played that type of role before. He can give off those vibes pretty strongly. So um, good bit of casting there as well, I think. He's a um, character actor, a very particular character. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Um, let's yeah. talk about uh, the technical aspects, because I think we've all praised those in the movie. Uh, black and white photography. You know, I talked about, like, cigarette burns, all that. Trent Redner and Atticus Ross doing a, you know, classic Hollywood score, um, you know, take their stab at that. Uh, sound design, doing some interesting things there. <clears throat> Jay, anything from the you know technical aspect of the film that stood out to you? I I do think it's going to get recognized uh, a lot in this department in when the Oscars roll around. It's very possible that it will. Um, yeah, I mean, nothing I can super intelligently add on top of uh, what's already been said. But 
again, you know, for like, it does very much like feel like, you know, like it is what I imagine like thirties and forties look like, you know, the dialogue is fun. I, I thought like, you know, visually, like I wasn't, excuse me, that distracted by the black and white. I actually thought it was shot well. And like, you know, the sound, uh, is it, I always get this wrong. I don't know you've been saying it, editing or mixing, we'll just call it quality, the sound quality. Um, no one really knows the difference. For. The Oscars don't even recognize it as a difference anymore. Yeah. <laughs> um, the sound quality again, like, you know, it worked again, like, you know, the, the choppiness of the audio, like it did take me like half a second to be like, wait, what? And I was like, Oh, duh. Because, but yeah. It, and you know, it, it worked. It's great. I think it will get recognized. Uh, or at least, you know, we'll very much be in the running like you do. Yeah, Scott, what do you think? Yeah, I'll be very surprised if this doesn't win some technical Oscars. You know, look, I, I know I, I kind of spilled the beans on my thoughts on the technical components right when I was opening up on my general impressions. But look, it nail, it nails the atmosphere. It nails the sound. It nails the look. It nails the, the, the costumes, which we haven't, I guess we haven't really talked about yet. I, mean, I don't know how much. I mean, there is some hair. There's hairstyling in it as well, though maybe not as over the top as you'd expect what nominations for hairstyle often are. So TBD, if it, if makeup, if it would get that recognition, but production design, sound score, I mean, maybe not sound actually, but score, um, maybe, maybe sound. We'll see score, like everything that you'd expect. Like, I don't know, in, insert, like whatever nominations Dunkirk got, make will probably get plus a few more probably. Yeah, yeah, I think I think that's a good way of thinking about it. I don't know that I have too much else to add. I mean, I, I love old movies, so it was nice to watch a throwback like this that is very evocatively rendered, um, in, in my opinion. I mean, he's he's very much going for the old um, Hollywood style. I mean, we've seen a few black and white movies recently, um, you know, over the past few years that I think have used it effectively. Roma being another one, obviously, that is a phenomenal film. But... Uh, yeah, I, I I just think it's it's really cool the links that he went to. I mean, we've seen you know again talking about the series as a whole, we've seen this time and time again, uh, like that he will go the distance to make sure that the period. I mean, Zodiac I think is you know maybe the other best example from his filmography of like uh, you know when he is taking a specific time and place and you know, rendering it as closely as possible. But, you know, even something like Panic Room, right? I think there's such attention to detail in a way that the house is set up. The Panic Room itself is structured. Um, I think, you know, these are the type, these types of things are obviously very important to venture when he's crafting a movie. And, you know, it, it comes across here. Um, I, I do, I, I do, you know, think it's a tad of a shame that I think this is going to, this part of the movie is going to overshadow you know, the substance of the movie itself, maybe like, I think there, there are a lot of, I mean, not a lot, but there are other, certainly other people who are in y'all, you, you all's boat about like, you know, I was technically impressed, but uh, you know, it never hit me on any sort of gut level, which is well, a lot of people said about 1917, right? Scott last year. Um, and that was disappointing um, for both of us because we loved that film and the substance of that film too. And I feel the same way about Mank. I think, um, there's so much to unpack here and be engaged by that. Um, I would be disappointed if people can't get past the technical aspects, but that's inevitable, I guess. Some, people. yeah, maybe. I, I think for for me, just to talk on that difference because 1917. I mean, it was my it's still my number one movie from last year, even though I didn't. I did prefer that that Parasite won the Oscar. It still was my number one movie from last year, 
And the difference is, is that I think 1917 almost does the opposite of what Mank does. Like Mank is telling you a, a, a very wide ranging story with a lot of vignettes that lead up to this, like that is supposed to hone in on this one creative conflict that like Mank is, is fixed, is like fixated on. And that like uh, is supposed to consume your, your focus, or at least that's how I read the movie. But the problem is like all these vignettes to me, they often had stories that were like in relationships that were way more interesting to your point, even about the relationship that Mank and um, Rita Alexander, which is Lily Collins character we're having in the present. Like that's not the most interesting relationship or theme in the movie. And you're getting all these sort of choppy flashbacks. I mean, I think it fits together well also in the film, but choppy in the sense that they are very discreet flashbacks that talk about themes and explore relationships that frankly are just much more interesting to me than most things in the movie. Whereas 1917 is literally about, you know, a story that is made to look like in, in mostly in real time that gets you from one point, like point A to point B in the span of two hours. And there are no distractions to that story whatsoever. And so where I think where I felt emotionally detached a lot from Mank was because these like little teases that I got here and there about these relationships and these stories and these maybe just like, little narrative threads that I really liked and wanted to know more about more so than what was ultimately driving the movie forward. I felt the opposite of that for 1917, where I was really emotionally invested in the story. It carries me throughout the big emotional you know, points in the film. They hit me really hard. Cause that's like, you're totally invested in what's in front of you on screen. For me, I, I get that some people had these complaints. You're, you're absolutely right. Some people did have those complaints. And then when it gets to the end and you look back on the journey you just had, you're like, wow, that really hit me. And like the the way that it feels symmetrical at the end of the movie where he's sitting down to like take a nap <laughs> after what he's been through, which is how the movie starts when he's waking up. Whereas Mank, you like you get to the, for me, you get to the end of Mank and you're like, I get what happened, but I, I, don't, I don't even know what I'm supposed to like think of it, right? Which is maybe the unpacking part, right? Um, but to I, me- To be clear, I wasn't asking to compare 1917 and Mank. I was just saying- No, that, I know you, you know. weren't, but I'm saying th this is where I feel the disconnect between the, like, and I think it's actually a good point because I think the point you make is right about like these like really technically marvelous films, but how they how these two of them hit differently for me. And, and this isn't meant, meant really to bring 1917 in the equation, but just to, to illustrate for me why I felt detached from it is because it felt like there's all of these stories flying around throughout the film, purposefully so, but I wanted those stories more than I wanted the central narrative. Yeah. Well, let's talk about something that, you know, you, you've both brought up. Um, we don't have to go too deep into it. I think you guys have made your thoughts pretty clear, but the learning curve in this movie, right? Like, um, you know, do, do you guys think you have to have seen Citizen Kane? Do you think like, you know, were you guys completely lost at times in the movie? I mean, obviously I don't from the same perspective as you guys, because I have seen Citizen Kane multiple times. Um, but were you guys, you know, lost at times with what people were talking about? Um, and would you recommend, uh, that if people are thinking about watching this and not watching Citizen Kane beforehand, that they still go through with that? Jay. All right. I think we were like three or four questions in there. Let's see if I can hit them all. Um, learning curve too steep. Um, I mean, again, like I said, I think the movie's enjoyable again like not again coming in with virtually no context um i still you know like like not all the jokes or like you know important pieces like had directly to do with the movie right like they were like tangentially related or like eventually going to like 
you know, be the part of the reason that he ends up writing it. But like, you know, I, I, I still thought there was like plenty to enjoy. Um, would I tell someone who was going to watch this movie and not read Citizen Kane plot summaries that they should? Uh, I mean, yeah, you know, if, if they wanted to spend like a couple minutes on Wikipedia, I would, I would say that probably would aid their viewing experience. I might even go just read the plot summary after this, just to see like, if I can, you know, hindsight 2021, not, but like, see how much I can like remember from the movie is like referenced in the summary. Um, but all in all, you know, like, yeah, I, I would have a hard time recommending this to a casual fan who didn't want to like read up on the film beforehand. I mean, there's some stuff for sure. Like, I mean, you know, Rosebud, obviously you need to understand what that is and its significance to the movie, which again, I think you can get from a cursory reading of the plot. Um, but then there's also, you know, there's a few lines about like uh, Marion Davies comparing her character to, I forget what the name of the um, character is in Citizen Kane, but like the nightclub singer from Citizen Kane. Um and comparing those two characters, I think you, you might want to understand that character's significance to, to Citizen Kane as well. But uh, Scott, what about you? I mean, I, you're on the same page as Jay, I'm guessing. Yeah, look, I, look, if someone's asked me whether they should watch or should read Citizen, like the plot summary, again, I haven't read or watched, you know, anything to do with Citizen Kane. I'm in the same boat as Jay. Like, I roughly know what it's about. Like, I could tell you that it is a, it is about this archetype of person, but I couldn't tell you anything else about the movie and look like I'm sure if I like after this podcast went and watched Citizen Kane tonight and then rewatch the movie tomorrow, I'm like pretty sure that I'll get more out of the movie. Like just point blank. Does that mean that you need to go and like, am I going to tell someone if you're going to, if you're going to want one, if you want to watch Mank, you need to go watch Citizen Kane or you need to go read like, no, just watch the movie and, and make what you make of it. Will you get more out of it? Like, I, I don't know because I haven't been there yet, but I can only assume that everyone who will get more out of it from having under having some understanding of says Kane, how deep that understanding needs to be. I'll take your word for it, that it just needs to be cursory. Um, but look like if you want the full enjoyment of this film and you're not familiar with citizen Kane, you're not going to get it. I don't think, I think the movie really asks a lot of you. And, and like, I was more up with it by the end of the movie. Cause it, like at some point you just realize what's going on and you don't need necessarily to get the references to understand the plot, but like certainly early on, I felt lost for sure. Yeah. And, and the thing is like, we're in a unique perspective of having to do this for the podcast, right? Like for, for the two of y'all at least, right? Whereas right. I think like the normal film goer would not watch this film, would not be interested in this film, would not want to watch this film if they had not seen Susan Kane before, right? So there, you know, I don't think they would ever be in a pos position that you guys are in of like, oh, I'm going to watch this having not seen but, it's, but isn't that what netflix is all about though like i'm just just like i know this maybe this is getting too philosophical about like what our distributors are but like netflix like is certainly pushing this probably like within their own internal algorithms to like be at the top of everyone's suggested list regardless of whether or not it's like trending in the top yeah, 10 I mean, US or whatever i'm sure that they would i mean of course they want as many people to watch it as possible but i think this movie is like more about the awards love honestly like you know, Roma was never going to be a movie that was going to be watched by millions and millions of people. I mean, it's a black and white, you know, foreign film. Um, I did, I think that this this type of movie isn't necessarily in like the, you know, that they're targeting mass audiences with this type of thing. I understand like that is kind of what Netflix is all about. That is what their strategy is about. It's like, hey, I see this thing. I'm going to click on it and watch it now. Um, but uh, I don't know if if Mank is, if that's exactly 
going forward with Mank. I think they have plenty of other films that they've released this year that um, serve that audience better. But look, for me, the bottom line is just watch Citizen King, right? Like it's like a two hour movie. It's a fantastic movie. Even if you don't like movies or watch old movies that much, the movie really holds up. Uh, I think you're surprised about how much, you know, you're you're entertained and engaged by it. And then Definitely. you're ready to go. You're ready to go for Mank. So like, you know, we can have the conversation about, you know, plot summary, cursory, how, how much do you really need to know about Citizen Kane? Bottom line, just watch the movie. And I think you'll enjoy Mank a lot. Yeah, but um, I think I think the problem with that, Scott, is that like if you're trying to get someone to watch a movie, you can't tell them that, all right, you need to go watch another movie first. Like that's just not going to get them to want to watch the movie. Right, but again, a lot of people have they shouldn't it. have to watch a movie to enjoy well, another movie. That's, I don't know about that. True, like, 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 if it's not part of like a, I mean, like, like this is a movie about like, like some. That's I, like, like saying you need to go watch Footloose to appreciate Guardians of the Galaxy. Like, I, I don't think that that's necessarily. Uh, okay, true. hang on a second. Uh, There's like one. Not quite. That's not, not quite large right. Reference to Footloose and Guardians of the Galaxy, and this entire thing is about. An entire other. Sorry, thing. I shouldn't have come after the MCU. I should have known my audience a little bit better. I should know my audience a little bit better. But no, I, I don't, legal I don't scholar think, over here should make a better argument for comparison. To be clear, so. I don't. Th- I don't think there's any. Look, let's remember that Jay was making the argument that you should never have to watch a movie. Hang uh, on, I, I, I immediately tried to qualify that. I immediately yeah. tried to qualify that, but like about something like this, like something that isn't like part of like. First of all, like like a, either a shared universe or like a, like a, a like a, a string of movies. I can't think of the word for it because it's not always a trilogy. But like I can't, you know, if it's series, series. Thank you. Um, you know, if yeah, I don't know. I, I'm I'm loosely of that opinion. I'm sure you could still find me counterexamples. But like, if I'm not watching something from a series, um, to me, it's or, not about should like whether you should ever have to watch a movie or not. It's just like if you want a lot of people to watch your movie. You should lower the like. This is going back to what I said in my other my letterbox review. You should lower the barriers of entry to your movie. It doesn't mean you have to do it. Like if you want to make a movie that you like, other people need to watch other things first to enjoy it. Go do it. But just like you have to understand who your audience is, right? And this film's audience is not everyone, and that's fine. There's nothing wrong with that. But this film's audience again, is not everyone. Again, sure, it's not, sure. I totally agree with that. But again, I would just restate my point that like. It's a barrier to entry, but it's not that much of a barrier because, again, Citizen Kane is considered to be the greatest film of all time, um, and you know one of one of the most famous films of all time. It's, for it's sure. a bigger barrier than most movies than, that I want to go see. Yeah, I mean, I think it's a bigger barrier than more than ninety five percent of movies, probably. Yeah. Well, I mean, I would just say that that's a shame people aren't willing to watch Citizen Kane. Um, you know, they're, they're in order to get more appreciation out of that. They're getting shamed. <laughs> Uh, sorry guys uh watch watch good movies but anyway um let's talk about uh some of the themes of the of the movie a little bit more i've alluded to and i i wrote this in the script uh with some alliteration that i want to just restate for the listeners that we just lost apparently um but power propaganda and politics which i think are in this movie all go hand in hand um you know i've said i think you know, that there's these political conversations going on about Sinclair, who is the progressive candidate, right? He's written all of these um, books like Oil and the Jungle going after major industries of capitalism in America. Um, and so he's the he's the progressive socialist type candidate. And then you have I don't even remember what the name of the like incumbent. Frank Miriam. Yeah. Um, 
who is backed by, you know, a lot of these big, you know, Hollywood moguls by Mayer and Hearst and, you know, these people that Mank is associating with. And Mank obviously feels a little bit different. Um, but it's all about that system of power, like I said, like, because, you know, they're voting for the candidate who is going to keep the wealth with them, keep their power with them. Um, and they are using that power. It's like a symbiotic relationship because they're also using that power to produce these propaganda films, right? Which in are, you know, are smearing Sinclair end up playing a significant role in the election. At least the movie would like you to believe that. And there's also this whole narrative about um, sort of narrative about uh, Manx's friend Shelley, who, um, you know, helps with the propaganda films and ends up like committing suicide because um, of the, you know, that he wasn't, that Sinclair did not get elected. Um, and uh, so, so some interesting ideas that are going on there. And again, I think somewhat, you know, relevant again to the conversations that we have nowadays, you know, about progressivism versus um, capitalism, you know, stuff like that. What did you guys think of these themes, Scott? It certainly is an interesting one because I, I agree that, look, some of the way the politicians in, in this film are painted feels very relevant today. I don't want to say wholly relevant today, but certainly feels like it, more familiar than it should be when it's 85 years removed or whatever that is like 1936 election. So I guess like 84 years removed. Um, maybe I'm doing the math right. Jake can check me on that. But overall, look like it, it, it feels more relevant than it should be, which I don't know. Take, take, take that with what you will. Um, and did I think that it, it worked? It was certainly interesting for me, though, when things are, you know, you're looking at something in 1930s, 40, like it's it's really hard to me to know, like, all right, is this an accurate portrayal of what happened at the time? How much like like leeway is taken to make it feel relevant? And, and that's where I was kind of stuck with the movie, because look like this is ultimately not a, I mean, like it's a biopic, but it's, it's not historically accurate fully. And so I think it, it leaves me wondering if the politics of the film, like how much of it is influenced by the politics of today. And I think like the more I think about that, the less I think it's too influenced by it. I mean, look, this script was like written when like the, when, when did Jack Fincher write this script? Like originally like in the nineties. I was like, like yeah, maybe, maybe, yeah. maybe even longer. So like 20 to 30 years ago, Right. And so I think that it, it's kind of surprising how resonant it feels in a, in a lot of ways. And I certainly think this whole like propaganda element and, and how movie studios throw their weight around or executives throw their weight, or, weight around and in the way they throw it is very interesting, much more interesting than the writing of Citizen Kane to me. And I was disappointed, honestly, that the movie wasn't more about that. Like, I know it's baked in uh, in a key theme of the thing overall, but the direction that takes that theme in some sometimes it feels rushed like with Shelley committing suicide you know at the point in the film and then other times it feels like what's driving that theme again not to harp on this point too much like just isn't the thing that I find interesting about the movie like like him like the Herman Mankiewicz having this like crisis of conscience like at the end of the film and like drunkenly rolling up to San Simeon and like verbally berating everyone at the party like that's like that climax is not an interesting climax to me ultimately and like in the in the theme of power and how movie studio executives use it or create propaganda or whatever it might be like i'm just looking maybe for something different um and i could talk longer i know we're already running long i could talk longer about what that is 
particular thing is that I'm looking for. But I guess this movie, like I just didn't vibe with the direction this movie ultimately was pulling me. Um, and I just wanted something different ultimately from it. Uh, even though I think the themes themselves that you're talking about, like in, all three of them are interesting. And I think that spending more time like in the thirties rather than towards the end of the movie just would have felt like there was like richer content to, to explore um, than what they ultimately did. Jay, do you agree? In large part. Um, I mean, yeah, I, I don't even really remember what the original question was, but just about the themes. I will say like, yeah. And, and you know, the themes of like power politics, Press. I don't remember. Propaganda. I'm not even sure power was one of them. Press. It was propaganda. Sorry. I also have this. Still okay. all um, yeah. I mean, like, I, I think it definitely could have taken an interesting, a more interesting direction than it did. Um, and, you know, maybe it felt like a little bit rushed. I, you know, keeping in mind that this script was written in the 90s, it was hard not to feel like it was tailored to stuff today, but maybe that's also part of the point, right? That a lot of this is like a little bit timeless, um, like happened then and happens now. Um, honestly, like I, I might've even just found it more enjoyable if today's political climate wasn't so exhausting. Like I told you I was, I had just watched the movie and like mid movie, I'm like, you know, I get a notification that like the, the president like, you know, reached out to, I think it was Pennsylvania this time, the house to like help overturn results. And I'm like, we're still doing this. Um, so, you know, wh whether it was the news itself or just the fact that like, we're in the middle of like this, like, you know, political shit storm, I'll just say, um, you know, it, I, I thought that, you know, they could have, they either could have like leaned into some of those things a little bit more and made the movie more about that, or just, you know, toned it back a little bit because it, it just felt a little too relevant for me to like find that, it's not necessarily meant to be found enjoyable, right? But like, I didn't find it like enjoyable at times because I, I just felt like stressed out and like I could be like, you know, closing my ears, and, like walking down the street, or closing my eyes, excuse me, walking down the street of New York. And like, I would have believed some of the stuff I heard, uh, you know, was from today. Audio quality yeah. notwithstanding. <laughs> yeah, Cigarette there, burns notwithstanding. <laughs> there's a line that Lewis Mayer has that's, interesting it's something about like you know the only thing that people get that the movie audience gets from movies is a memory right like we still own it we're, we're still the ones who own like you know they're paying for something that they don't get to own when they go see a movie um which i think is an interesting way of thinking about like the way that these people view the movie business and you know like the, the artistic part of it is almost like not even a factor for them it's their you know, creating something to be consumed by, you know, a person who uh, comes away from the movie feeling fulfilled whatsoever, but um, they don't see, you know, artistic appreciation as fulfillment. Only thing that they see as fulfillment is like actually controlling or owning something, right? Um, and they're always going to be the ones who own the movie, which is, I think is an interesting idea, especially because like when you weave in you know, Mank and his role as the screenwriter, right? Like, you know, they're paying him money supposedly so that they can own him, right? And have control over his screenplay to some extent uh, and the type of, you know, the type of themes that he puts in, into his script. And when, you know, it's becoming clear that he's not going to abide by the plan, there's all these threats that are going on. You know, they're um, sort of hinting that his career is going to be in jeopardy 
Um, and ultimately his decision is about like, you know, do I rebel against the way that Hollywood is, you know, structured right now with this and say, hey, you know, you can't buy my, you know, morals, whatever, um, with your money. Uh, I am going to, you know, write the script that I want to write and that I think is going to make the best movie and the most artistically fulfilling movie. Um, which kind of like goes to my last point I wanted to bring up is just, you know, the portion of Hollywood and screenwriters and, you know, Hollywood is kind of portrayed as a dream killer, which is kind of what I was, what I was getting at. You know, we see like these early scenes with Mank, he goes to pitch a monster movie and he has this whole like concept for it, like, uh, you know, that he wants to make something really unique and thematic and, you know, something disguised sort of as this genre um, monster movie and the Isn't studio all made up though. Just kind of dismiss him. What do you mean? Isn't that all made up? Did, didn't they just walk into the meeting and just start like basically improving what the movie was going to be? That was like the very heavy implication. Yes. Well, yeah. But the, the point is that they he is dismissed, right? Like his his you know sort of creative ideas, um, like the types of films I guess that he is interested in making. Um, you know, that he comes up with here, whatever. Um, that he, you know, they're just dismissed by um, the studio head. Like, you think he says, like, this is a B picture, this is a B film, something like that. Um, and that sort of, like, sets the tone, because that's one of the earliest things you do. That sort of, like, sets the tone for, um, you know, the I, again, the idea that the studio heads, the people with all the wealth and the power are the ones who are controlling the content of the, um, the films that, they, I mean, you know, they're literally controlling the, the content of like the propaganda movies that they make there, but they're also in their own way controlling the content of, you know, generic mainstream movies whatsoever. And, you know, they want to have this sort of stranglehold over Wells and, and Manx's film and, you know, they're ultimately not able to. But uh, did this theme resonate with you guys at all? Yeah, look, I, I think that the theme of like creative ownership and like ownership over like what your author, you know, your style and your content and whatever, like that's really important, right? Like, and I think you see that in multiple different, different parts of, of the film. You see it in Shelley, like basically whoring himself out ultimately is like make these propaganda films for things that he doesn't believe in. And, you know, that literally unravels him. It, you know, it is one of the contributors to him committing suicide. It's not the only one because he has the Parkinson's disease too, but it is one of the major reasons that he commits suicide. And then Mank, you know, possibly with that in mind, as he writes, you know, as he writes Citizen Kane, you know, doesn't doesn't necessarily make those same compromises that Shelley does. And I guess the film implies that he pays the like his career pays the price for it. Um, and I think that that is powerful. But again, to me, like I just I'm am just not connecting at the same level as it seems like other like some other people are with this movie, because I can like sit here and talk about that theme. But like ultimately that theme doesn't feel fully fleshed out in this movie to me. Like it feels like something was missing or maybe the movie's delivery of the theme wasn't as impactful as I felt like it should have been. And maybe this, this is a bit of a broader point. I don't want to drag us too far off topic, but as like a broader point that I think this feeds into, I just like for a filmmaker like David Fincher, who is known for like creating tension, you know, milking a scene, building things up over the course of a movie to a climax. This film feels like it doesn't have any of that to me. And I, and I think that that's part of why I feel like some of these themes that we're talking about are landing a little bit flat to me and why I don't think like, like these 
themes aren't resonating as strongly with me, even though I on paper can like see them and agree with them and think they're important. Like it just felt like they are not fully fleshed out in the film that I watched. And I think that was something that I, I don't necessarily think I'm in the majority or minority. It's just something that I've been wrestling with. I think since I watched the movie. I mean, I think that the real life story is a little bit anticlimactic to some extent, sure. right? Because like yeah. his, his big, you know, he doesn't get some sort of like heroes, uh, you know, reception. I mean, he gets an Oscar, Oscar I guess. Scott. <laughs> he, he gets an Oscar, but yeah, but then again, his career goes in the toilet, right? Which is yeah. kind of, you know, again, the whole debate about like, oh, well, you look, he made great art. He made something that was, you know, recognized for awards is now considered to be one of the greatest films of all time. But what did it get him? A fat lot of nothing because he, yeah. you know, decided to rebel against the system. And so it is anticlimactic to to some extent, um, which maybe is why the that, ending is a little bit unsatisfying. And like the, but in the anticlimax, I think you're supposed to feel the emotional weight of the decisions that he makes. But I don't. That that's what I'm saying. I, I don't I don't feel that. Uh Jay, anything you want to add about this particular conversation? Yeah, I mean, I I don't think I really felt the emotional weight either. And I don't know, like I didn't necessarily have a problem with like, you know, the way that final scene at the house, you know, when he's coming, just giving a drunken monologue was necessarily like a bad way to end, like a bad thing to have if the movie had can't believe I'm saying this, but been like even a little bit longer because I feel like that ending is so like quickly like rushed through. Like I don't really have time to even like digest that, you know, he, he like stuck to his guns, won an Oscar and then his career like ended like, you know, maybe my sense of time is a little bit warped. It feels like that all happens within like a couple of minutes. And again, maybe my sense of time is warped, but it like, does. Yeah. It, that's the last 15 minutes of the movie. Yeah. And like, again, I'm not sure how much you could have realistically even like put in and have it like make sense, like, or even what you necessarily would have shown. Like, I'm not sure there is a better alternative, but I did feel like that the, the part of it that, that should have like hit me a little bit harder, like in terms of, again, like, you know, he like, he won the Oscar, but also like his career ended. Like neither of those things like hit me particularly hard. And I feel like they should have. All right. Well, I think we said what there is to say. Uh, favorite scene or moment for Mank, uh, if you have one. Uh, Scott. Not that harsh on the movie. I, I still, I still, there are parts of the movie that I really respect and admire. And one of those scenes that we've already talked about, so I don't get to spring it on you guys, but it is that scene with Louis B. Meyer or Mayor Meyer. I guess it's Mayor. Um, in at in you know on the MGM lot talking to like all the different I guess I assume all the different crews that are working on different films um, on on the lot and asking them to take a fifty percent pay cut while presumably he doesn't take a pay cut and continues to live the life that he's living. Look, I just found that it really sets the tone for that particular through line of of the film overall with you know ha- like the relationship that a studio executive has with everyone else in the studio. And I, and I really like that scene. I really like the performance. And I think that, that really sets the tone for the performance as well. Jay? Funny enough, and I, I think I said I was going to choose a one-liner. I am recanting because I think I actually am going to land on um, the scene where they go in and improvise that horror film. Um, I don't know why. Something about just like the ping-ponging of ideas. Like I kind of just sat there. And again, maybe this is like the the corona, you know, missing friends. Or maybe this is like just how i feel but um that kind of like you know the, the witty like ping-ponging off each other i was like damn i want that and that felt i mean that that was a that was a funny thing to feel 
I do want to give a quick shout out uh, to, you know, if I knew I were going to the electric chair, I would want him sitting on my lap. I thought that was a great line. Yeah, that was a good line. Yeah, I'm going with that dinner party scene. Like I said, I just love listening to the dialogue and the scene. I could have listened to it go on for another 15, 20 minutes, just them having this, you know, conversation about politics, whatever, you know, uh, different ideologies. He said, what is it? He says, in uh, in socialism, you share the wealth. In communism, you share the poverty. I thought that was a good one-liner. Um, I don't know, just just a lot of uh, of interesting ideas in this scene and good personalities bouncing off of each other. So um, I, you know, it it was the kind of like very freeform, loose, like dialogue-driven type of scene that I really gravitate to, and that is in a lot of my favorite movies. So uh, that one stood out. Uh, let's put a score on it, Jay. Going to the sheet here. Uh, we gave this one singular we um, a six point six. Scott Shelton, you're losing your mind. Um, let's go to the sheet me. here. I'm be sorry, I, I, I don't say every time we rate a movie on, on I, future episodes of the podcast. Scott, I'm taking my headphones off because I don't want to be any sadder than I already am. So five point four. Uh, I'm giving it a nine. I loved the movie. It is in my top five of the year. Um, and I think that people should see it. Um, and, you know, we we don't have to have the conversation again, but uh, watch oh, Citizen sure Kane. Uh, it. it's, a, it's a great movie. Watch Citizen Kane. It's a fantastic movie. And then you're, you'll be ready to go. It's really not that the, hard. The, the good news, guys, the key takeaway from you this. You care that- about movies at all. Scott, Scott has told you more times on this episode to watch Citizen Kane than he's told you to watch Mank. That's all you should need to know. Anyway, 9.0 for Mank. It's great. Um, Jay, uh, I mean, Citizen Kane's a better film than Mank, if that's what you're getting at. Like, yeah. Um, no, I'm, I'm just trying to get a jab in there at the end. No, it's totally fine. Yeah, I mean, yeah, look, I'm not, uh, I'm not, I don't think, I don't know this, but I'm sure most people would, who have seen both would probably say Citizen Kane is better, but I don't know. I would hope so. But, um, I, I mean, would you know, again, this movie is really good, but um, but let's talk about our final rankings, right? Because last time that we had our, uh, you know, we revealed what our final rankings for were for the Fincher, Fincher films that had been released to that point. Um, where does Mank fit in? This is the best question to ask. You don't have to necessarily go through all of your rankings again, but uh, where would you put Mank on the list, uh, Jay? Yeah, Scott Harvey, you might want to take out your headphones again uh, for the next few minutes. Um, This isn't even top five in this countdown. Forget about top five in Fincher. I'm confused by what you said. This isn't even top five in this countdown. It's not even top five Fincher. Aren't those the same things? (laughs) I said said top five of the... You're talking about being like one of the top five movies of the year, and I'm saying it's not even top five. Okay, I got you now. I might have misspoken. My bad. Yeah, I think um, I think you might have misspoken because I, I was also similarly confused. But all it's right, fine. we're moving right. on. We're gonna leave this in there. Um, I had it uh, down at I think eighth between Benjamin Button and Fight Club. All right, Scott. Not I don't remember exactly what it's between, but it is also number eight for me. Um, for me, this is the best of the rest. I would uh, declare it. I guess I I think that he's made four masterpieces. Right, I think he's made. Uh, Zodiac, Seven, Social Network, and Gone Girl, and then I would put Mank next on that list. After after those four that I consider to be like the god tier of finisher, um, I think this is number five. So um, 
I really liked it and I look forward to revisiting it. Um, so there you go. That's our review of Mank. Uh, when we come back, Scott and I will be uh, talking about a couple of big news stories, including uh, the Oscars being in person, uh, plus the the deal that might shake up the movie industry forever uh, between HBO Max uh, and Warner Brothers. Uh, we'll be right back. Welcome back to this episode of Some Like It, Scott. Scott, uh, huge news in the movie industry this week. Um, yeah. you know, we've been kind of we've been kind of waiting for a breakthrough on this whole what's going to happen with you know the future of theaters. Um, you know, with COVID having uh, si- significantly depleted the financial resources uh, of theaters in several cases. Um, yeah. And you know, what what is going to be the the strategy going forward for studios about how they want to distribute their movies. Uh, and we got some, you know, we, we got some insight as to maybe where the industry is going uh, with this deal made by HBO max and uh, WB for next year. Tell us a more about this guy. Yeah. So going to do the 32nd overview of like the corporate structure, HBO, HBO max and Warner brothers are all subsidized. Well, okay, HBO and HBO Max are subsidiaries of Warner Brothers. It's like that they own HBO. Warner Brothers is a subsidiary of AT&T. There's your corporate structure overview. On AT&T's investor call last week, they announced that all of the 2021 theatrical releases currently scheduled by Warner by Warner Brothers Film Studios. So think things um you know, Wonder Woman 1984 is this year, but think things like you're like The Suicide Squad dune which recently got pushed things like judas and the black messiah if you're looking for something smaller godzilla versus kong um i mean the list here is, is pretty ridiculous like some of the biggest movies that get made every year in hollywood i mean tenet was this year and that's warner brothers as well every single one of those films is going to debut day and date with its theatrical release on hbo max the streaming platform um that h that warner brothers and at&t have done a really poor job of consolidating around so far and and honestly, I think we've talked before on the podcast how low their their or underperforming their subscriber numbers are compared to what they were hoping for in the first. I think they launched in April, so you know the first six, seven, eight months of that streaming platform existing, and how it's been a very messy rollout. They have like 15 million HBO subscribers, and like not even half of them have like activated their HBO Max accounts or something like that. Um, pretty pretty sad stuff from a rollout perspective, and. I can only read this, Scott, as a play to get those subscriber numbers up. I mean, we talked about it. We kind of got a hint of this with the announcement of Wonder Woman 1984 debuting on HBO Max the same day, Christmas Day, that it was going to release in theaters. You know, that announcement came, I think, a week or two ago. And we talked about it on the podcast then. And, you know, this just feels like AT&T getting really excited by that idea and sort of, uh, you know, really blowing their load on shooting the entire 2021 theatrical slate to HBO max, especially when there's a good chance that, you know, nine, 10 months into the year, you know, looking at the back, you know, quarter of the year that things are relatively back to normal, at least from a safety perspective. Does that mean the box office is going to return to normal? No, it, it doesn't mean that, but it does mean that the situation will be less dire than it feels right now. 
But nevertheless, they are shooting these 17 planned theatrical releases on HBO Max for 31 days, so one month. You can you can stream it if you're an HBO Max subscriber. Then it leaves the platform. It continues to run in theaters this whole time, and then it will go to VOD, uh, paid VOD, and then presumably eventually back to HBO Max or licensed to another streaming platform. So huge deal for HBO Max subscribers. Uh, huge deal for presumably getting subscribers and maintaining subscribers over the course of the full year. HBO, I should say, actually, I guess Warner Brothers and AT&T insist that this is only a temporary plan, that this will only be for 2021. This will not happen in the future. I don't buy that for a second. I think this is a one-year trial run to see if they will want to do this in the future. I do not buy that they're, that this will for sure return to normal in 2022 and not have 2022 movies released on HBO Max. I think that is very much still up in the air and depends on the performance of the subscriber numbers you know, over the next year as these movies come out onto the streaming platform. So, Scott, you kind of teased before the break that this is news that could potentially shake up the, you know, at least distribution and like part of the industry forever. And I think it'd have consequences upstream on movie production um, and content creation as well. I think it absolutely has effects up, upstream as well. And I and I don't think you can understate that. Honestly, I think that this is this is the biggest piece of news um, that we've gotten this year easily for theaters. Like this is much worse than the fact that even a pandemic was even happening. Uh, for theaters and this ranks up there in the industry and in terms of industry news with the likes of Disney acquiring Fox, you know, shaking up the, you know, the, the oligopoly that was sort of the big six movie production companies and consolidating them into or making Disney by far the largest of the studios. And this is right up there with it. We'll see if the, the actual long-term impact is as grim or as dire, maybe as some are saying, I mean, some are calling this the death of, of the theatrical, you know, distribution as we know it and that would again imply that sort of like the large-scale theatrical um distributor or sessions say distributors but theatrical um cinemas like amc regal etc would their way of doing business will die out because to attract people to the theaters you need essentially premium experiences something like an alamo or an arc light would offer um and that's not what amc and regal offer they offer you know, movies to a mass audience who aren't looking for anything special in there, you know, beyond seeing a movie on a big screen. And, you know, you and I have been, you know, very grateful for that opportunity because they, you know, AMC has AMC A-list and we're able to watch, you know, all the movies that we watched in 2019. I mean, let alone the ones that we watched in 2018 and the ones we watched at the beginning of this year. But, you know, I saw probably 150 movies in theaters or something close to that. Um, 100 to 150 movies, you know, over the year before COVID started. And, uh, that wouldn't have been possible without, you know, large distributor or sorry, large um, cinematic players like AMC. Um, and so it certainly is a different is a, is a shift probably will mean a shift long term for them. We'll see if that comes to fruition or not. But when you say it's huge news, absolutely. It's absolutely huge news. And talking a little about some of the upstream con- consequences like that, like is HBO Max going to like forget the whole controversy of Christopher Nolan wanting his movies distributed in theater. Just forget that for a second. Like, Who's going to pay Christopher Nolan $200 million to make a movie? if they're not putting it into theaters and have the box office returns. Like who's going to do that? Is Warner Brothers going to do that still? I don't know. Like, is, is it really feasible to pay Chris Nolan $200 million when you could pay four other filmmakers $50 million each to, to make a film? I don't know the answer to that question, but I think those are questions now being asked. Whereas before, like, no, you just paid Chris Nolan $200 million and he made you like a $600 million movie, like end of story. Right. And so it, it's really changing the way content is, I think pretty like content is produced and created. And, 
I think also something that has been underwriting a lot of the conversations around Netflix movies that we've talked about, mostly the ones that we haven't talked about on the podcast, but I think including some of the ones that we talked about on the podcast is how good does the movie have to be to make it on Netflix, to be created by Netflix? It doesn't have to be as good as it has to be to be played in theaters because ultimately it's all amortized over the cost of a Netflix subscription. It can and be terrible. <laughs> exactly. And, and it still gets viewership much higher than it ever would in theaters. And so the bar for things getting made and the requisite of quality that goes along with paying 15, $20 for a ticket in a, in a movie theater on opening night that, that goes away. And I, and I, that doesn't mean that, that, you know, good movies are not going to exist anymore, but I think the qualifier of the movie needs to be good, good to be made. And, and the percent of movies that I think get made that are good, I think it's possible that with the with a model like this that that drops, and that's disappointing. If that is, if that again that does come to fruition, fruition, Scott. But I just threw a lot of things at you. I definitely uh, got on my soapbox and monologued for a little bit, but I would love to hear some of your thoughts on any or all of what I just said. Yeah, I mean, look, I mean, from what you say, it sounds like you're, you know, a hundred percent sure that this is going to happen. Like when I first saw it, the story, I was like. Okay, well, you know, we had a sort of similar thing that came up earlier this year, right? With, um, mm -hmm. with was a universal, right? Universal, that said, yeah. yeah, that said that you know they Total were going to have this, yeah, yeah exactly. It, and you know, it's a shortened and, theatrical window, right? They shortened it to three weekends or seventeen days or whatever, right? They gave they gave the theaters a cut of the a cut of the money from the VOD, and then you know it it worked itself out before any real you know backlash came from it. Um, and the, you know, they cut a new deal with the theater chains. Um, so my, my first inclination in seeing this story, I was like, well, is this just going to be another redux of this situation? Are they, you know, is this some sort of negotiation move? But I mean, yeah, like, yeah, I, I think it will probably happen too. And, uh, yeah. look, I mean, you know, it doesn't affect my movie going habits because I'm still going to go see everything in theaters. Um, but like, for the industry going forward, right, is the thing that, you know, I, I would be concerned about because we are not the the average moviegoers. Again, financially, like it is hard to sustain, you know, consistent moviegoing um, if you're, yeah. let's say, a family of, or something. Yeah, family I mean, of four. Know, we've yeah. talked about it before. Like, you know, if you're a family of four, you go to the movies. It costs I mean, you 60 it, to $80. Yeah, I mean, if you're in a big city, like, yeah, it costs you like $100 and stuff with concessions and all that. Yeah, concessions. Yeah, I didn't even factor in concessions there. That's like a one time every two months thing, maybe, for for a family like that. Um, yeah. And if if you can watch the movie at home now, with ad, through your cable subscription that you're already paying for, right, to get HBO Max, um, well, then, yeah, these people are never going to go to the theaters. Like, I, I think I, yeah. you know, understand where the doomsday prophecies are coming from. Um, and the tricky thing about that is that, you know, after having said everything that I said that I think painted it in a pretty negative light, it's incredibly consumer friendly. I mean, like having things in the subscription built in, like premium, premium, premium movies built into the subscription, giving you the chance to watch that however you want to. You Like, like for example, you can still go to the theaters and watch these movies. They're still going to be released there. Or you can stay at home and watch them on your TV. It's just not sustainable that. for theaters. It's though. not sustainable for theaters, presumably, right? Like, presumably, mm -hmm. it's not exactly your point. But from a consumer perspective, the like this is the most consumer friendly move that anyone's made, you know, in the last year in terms of theatrical release. I mean, yeah. Look, I mean, there's a certain 
subset of people who are going to be very excited about this news, right? Um, and excited about the possibility of having all these movies at their fingertips there. And look, you know, I think people are making a lot of trite jokes about like, oh, good, now I can watch Dune on my iPhone, blah, 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 blah. I mean, look, TVs nowadays, like, you know, you get a good quality TV and, you know, it's not the same thing as watching it in the theater, but it's still, a, you know, a prime experience of watching the movie. Like, you know, yeah. if you have a solid sized TV, you know, decent enough sound system, whatever. I was say, yeah, especially um, if you have like a sound bar. I mean, if you have surround sound, then even better, but I mean, it's not, not like you're, you know, and, uh, you know, film critic who, you know, we follow in the Schmodow Scott, William Viviani, he was making the point that like, think about like your favorite movies. How many of them did you actually see in theaters ever? Right. Like, and, and he was bringing up, like, he, he wanted to people to do a whole thread of like, you know, name a blockbuster movie that you love despite having never seen it in theaters. And, you know, a lot of my favorite action movies like speed and the fugitive and crimson tide, like they're all nineties movies. I didn't see any of these in theaters. Um, and yeah, I mean, look, and, my my top four movies, I think on Letterboxd, you'll over to right now. I don't think I saw any of them in theaters. Yeah. And so, you know, I value the theater experience above all because I mean, it countless number of movies that I can think of yeah. to which the theatrical experience improved upon them. And it wouldn't have been the same probably um, with watching it at home. But at the same time, I think like great movies are still going to be great movies. Right. No matter how yeah. you view them. Um I'd still kill to see all of my favorite movies in theaters, though. Right. Like, point, you know, my favorite movie this year, Possessor. I would kill to see that in theaters. It's still my favorite movie of the year, right? Over a bunch of stuff that I did see in theaters. So, um, well, a bunch is maybe a bit of an exaggeration. Most of that stuff we saw in theaters, with a couple exceptions, is pretty crap. But, yeah. Yeah, but, uh, yeah, point being, I think it stands up against, you know, theatrically released movies from previous years. Whatever. Yeah, um, so. You know, I will be crushed. Life will go on, but it will suck to not yes, have theaters. Life will go on. There will still be movies, which is the most important thing, I guess, is the point that I'm getting at. I um, won't stop watching movies because theaters don't exist anymore, but I will right. be sad. Yeah, I will be very sad. Um, anyway, Scott, moving on to the story that I wanted to bring up. Uh, the Oscars, we talk about it a lot. Cancel them. Um, well, they're not going to cancel them, Scott. In fact... They are going to most likely be having them in person. Now, this is not confirmed, but the Oscars are exploring how exactly they want to go about doing an in-person ceremony at the Dolby Theater, where they are traditionally held in Los Angeles. Um, you know, there again, no hard details yet about like how this is going to go down. But you know, surprising news, I think, to all of us that they were even exploring this as a possibility. You know, we've seen like the Emmys uh, did this sort of weird like hybrid thing with like jimmy kimmel you know he was in like an empty arena hosting i mean he was in like, he was in whatever theater they normally have the right. yeah. and, but then like you know some of the nominees like the Shit's creek cast for example they were all together in a room wearing masks and stuff like that so i think that was um, true for like all the nominees like i mean i know that was like zendaya and euphoria or that way and it was yeah it was yeah. it was mixed but okay. um so we've seen that sort of format. The CMAs, the Country Music Awards, they actually did do an in-person ceremony with people socially distanced. Not a whole lot of people there or whatever. I was actually surprised at like, um, the number of people that actually showed up. Like I thought that some of these people would have like said, no, nah, bam, we're good. But like, you know, a lot of the nominees and stuff were there. Obviously, if the Oscars do decide to do this, you know, they're going to 
prioritize like the nominee. It's not going to be like, you know, random celebrity who wasn't even in a movie this year. It certainly wouldn't be a full theater. Family members of, you know, the, the nominees. Um, but still, there's a lot of concerns about it, right? And, and you know, one of the concerns being that a lot of the potential nominees are quite old, right? Like Anthony Hopkins, Sophia Loren, like these people are in their 80s. Glenn Close is, el- is old, like, although I'm not Glenn sure she's going to get nominated anymore. Yeah. Uh, thank God. But um, I mean, who's the guy from The Five Bloods? I'm I'm blanking right now. He's Roy Lindo. Yeah, Gary he's Lindo. probably in his 60s or 70s. Um, yeah, so, so there's... Gary know, Oldman there's, is in his 60s? Sure. Yeah. There's those concerns, um, you know, that, which is which is obviously a not insignificant concern. I mean, look, if they if they do this, I'm sure they're going to try to make it the safest possible experience. But like, you know, you are, just are you sure? sure you can't be sure now? See, I don't know why I'm giving the Oscars any sort of benefit of the doubt. But um, but yeah, it, it, it's just it is going to be weird. I think if it if it goes forward, like I want the Oscars to happen. I've you know said that before. I've explained why. Um, and, um, but, but I, you know, I don't know if this is the, the answer as much as I like, like watching the spectacle and everything, you know, I think that's the appeal of the Oscars for me because the actual awards are like disappointing most of the time. Um, <laughs> the spectacle is like kind of the thing that I enjoy and getting, you know, the, at least in theory, celebrate having a night that celebrates the best movies of the year. Uh, never actually, very rarely ever actually happens. But again, the, the concept of it. Well, imagine ending on the high of Parasite winning Best Picture and never having another Oscar, Scott. Imagine ending on the high of Little Women winning Best Picture. And never imagine having... ending on the high of Little Women getting nominated. I need well, a different best picture. Nominated. Best picture, but not, but not. Imagine, imagine Greta Gerwig being acknowledged as a filmmaker and actually going out on that note. But anyway, we're getting off topic. But point is, Scott. I mean, I think you're, you know, you're, you seem to be on the side of let's just not even have the Oscars at all. Um, I, you know, would lean towards maybe doing something like the Emmys did, for example. I think that's I would lean toward that. the, the best of both worlds, right? Like you, yeah. you have like the you have the in person element of su- to some extent of like, you know, certain groups of nominees are together, right? So you can at least get like the celebrations, the reactions, whatever. If that's something that's like part of the experience yeah. for you, um, I thought the Emmys maybe. did it well. Like I, I watched, yeah. I didn't watch the whole ceremony, but I watched. A chunk of it and i thought it was produced really well i mean look guys we're not going to get jennifer lawrence like drunkenly tripping up the stairs after she wins the after she wins the oscar but like we make do with what we've got and i think that doing doing something like what the emmys did with the hybrid model of you know insert tina fey i think it's tina fey and amy poehler right who are hosting this year i can't remember um maybe maybe they're doing the globes actually uh i don't know amy poehler definitely i'm not sure about tina fey okay well it's kind of them. a package deal, so probably so. Yeah. yeah, it seems that way. But like, like, why, why, why you don't like just have them in the in there? Why? why? You can even you can even bring Warren Beatty in and and, and have him announce him. Like, yeah, having him announce Best Picture incorrectly. We played out that bit. <laughs> yeah, no, I'm just saying. Like, you you could bring him back, and and you could still have the awards presented in person. Obviously, you can't have how it is traditionally done with you know, certain awards being awarded by actors or actresses um, from the previous year. But you could still make a, a very good, you know, very enjoyable ceremony out of it. Scott, I might even go a step further and say, if they did that, maybe the ceremony would be shorter. Maybe <laughs> it wouldn't have to be four hours long. Um, yeah, which I think they, I, were, they did better about last year, but still. 
We, we didn't. And we were not asking the question, too, of why are they actually having hosts again, right? Because the last two years they haven't. And I thought it's I think it's been oh, fine. You, but no, anyway, they are. I'm, wait, hold on. You actually might be right. I think Honestly, I think no, I no, no, they are. They are. You're, you're right. They are. They are. I'm okay. pretty sure it is Tina Fey and Amy Poehler. But like I, I was just making the point that I don't understand why they switched back because I actually thought it was fine without. Us. But, you know, the funniest thing about the Emmys, right, was that. To deliver the awards, they like had people go to all the nominees' houses, but then only one of them obviously wins, right? So somebody, I think it was uh, the guy from, um, oh, what's that show called? Rami Yusuf. Rami Yusuf. It was him. He he took oh, yeah, like a video the of the person of the person with the Emmy, like when they found out that Rami Yusuf did not win the Emmy, like waving as they walked away with like the Emmy statue in their hand. So I mean, you know, they'd have to do something like that for the Oscars, which if yeah. you're you know, again, Glenn Close and Amy Adams probably aren't going to get nominated. But like, if they did, don't you think that would just be like the final nail in the coffin for them after? For Glenn, yeah, for Glenn Close, getting, especially getting yeah. passed over to then be like that. I mean, if I was them, I'd be like, well, that is literally my Oscar. You know, them waving goodbye to me ever winning an Oscar. But um, yeah, also but, I googled it, Scott. It, they are hosting the Golden Globes. The Oscars does not have a confirmed host yet. Okay. Well, Which good. makes sense because they've hosted the, they've hosted the Globes before, right? They, they and the Globes, or the Globes are going for. I don't know that they've said that much about how they're going to do it, but um, I imagine you know probably similar to the Emmys or maybe fully virtual. I don't know, but um, yeah, yeah, yeah. The point is, we are going to have award shows. Um, they're Presumably. you know everyone's experimenting with the way the proper ways to do these things, um, and if the Oscars did it in person, that would be something. You know, the Oscars are no stranger to bad ideas. I mean, look, they I don't know why they want to risk killing 50 percent of their voting body by having it in person. So that 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 is true. But although maybe for the sake of movies. Okay. Um, but I'll, I'll let that part out. <laughs> yeah, I, I, know, I know you will uh, now leave it in. Okay, I won't even write down the time code. I can't fix it now. I can't see what gesture I did. I was actually like crying. I was openly mm-hmm. leaving. Uh, about that the thought that of called, no. Oscar voters not being able to vote for Hillbilly Elegy. But, um, the thing is they will have already voted for them, and then they just won't be able to vote in the future. In the future, Sad. right. Um, which is, you know, probably a good thing, too. But anyway. Oh, the longest one uh, in a while. Let's go. That uh, concludes our episode of Something Like It, Scott. Well, you know, our countdown episodes are generally longer, and I kind of thought of this as, in, you know, extension of our countdown episodes so that's kind that's of true. why i i mean i definitely took some liberties with the timing of the nolan countdown series so i can't give you any shit at all for how long a uh, fincher countdown episode was oh man yeah we're still like <laughs> right close to like the dark knight episode and stuff like that but um but that'll do it for this episode of some like it scott and for our discussion of uh david fincher's films um, yeah i mean look his next movie is gonna be like six years from now so we'll probably never talk about a fincher movie again yeah, I, you know, I didn't make the point, but like, I just think that I, I'm in two minds because I love his film so much that I want him to make one every year. But at the same time, whenever he waits a really long time, like he did with this film, like he did with Zodiac, he usually produces something really special. So, you know, there's benefits to both approaches, I think. But anyway, that, that'll do it for Sun Like It, Scott, and our discussion of the films with David Fincher. Hopefully you've enjoyed Um and if you've enjoyed the podcast, uh, please support us. Uh, Patreon.com slash pods is our Patreon. We're on all of the podcast apps for you to l- like, rate, review, subscribe, do all of those things. Spotify, Apple Music, not Apple Music, Apple Podcasts, uh, and Anchor. 
um, we are not with the U2 album on Apple Music. Um, I'm going to songify our podcast and release it on <laughs> Apple Music. And we hope that you will uh, come back for our next episode of Sun Like a Scott, on which we will be reviewing uh, the Riz Ahmed starring drama Sound of Metal. Uh, but until then, for Scott Shelton, I'm Scott Harvey. We'll see you next time.